0: God always provides for His people. In dangerous times, as in times of peace, God gives His people the blessings of the good life. If you belong to God, God will always take care of you. He'll provide the work, clothing, home, and food you need to live. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and Internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We're in a verse-by-verse study of the book of Jeremiah. This week we begin our series on the theme of the final judgment. Today we'll hear how a famine of adversity is followed by a harvest of abundance. Well, Phil, today's message is entitled, A Remnant Chosen by Grace. You know, when I see the word remnant, I think of carpeting. Well, Mark, that's what I think
1: about, too. You know, when you think about remnant, you immediately think about carpeting. And, you know, it reminds me, uh, when we were living in England, we had a very dull, drab, gray apartment. But we were able to salvage a remnant of blue carpeting. It was just the thing we needed for our living room. And that's what a remnant is. It's something you hold on to because
0: it is valuable and precious. Well, my neighborhood, they call them remnants, so I have to be careful not to say it that way. Today, you talk about remnant theology. Could you give us a brief introduction as a primer for today's message? Mark, the idea of a remnant is a very important
1: theme in Scripture, and particularly in the Old Testament, that although many people turn away from God, God always preserves a remnant for himself. He holds on to, at times, even a small group of his people, but they survive, and ultimately God's promises are fulfilled for them and through them. And you look through the Old Testament, there were many times when people turned away from God, but there was always always a righteous remnant that was faithful to God. And ultimately, it was in their community that the Savior came. And that's a call to us to be faithful to God, even if many people seem to turn away from him. God has promised that his church will endure to the end of time. And by grace, we can be
0: part of that remnant. Well, thanks, Phil. We're in Jeremiah 40 now, where you can turn and listen to not the remnant, but the remainder of God's word for us today
1: was uh, remarking a moment ago that these are difficult passages, difficult chapters to preach, although Dr. Boyce assures me that they can't be as difficult to preach as they are to read. <laughs> I want to begin tonight with a question, and that is this. What will the United States be like in the year 2050, if that is it exists at all? Some Christians say that we will return to the glory days of Christian America. They long for the rebuilding of our nation. They work to recapture the evangelical faith of our founding fathers, and they hope to regain control of Congress and the media. And they believe, some of them, that we are on the verge of a spiritual revival which will sweep the nation. Now, I suppose it is possible that by the middle of the 21st century, America will still be at the center of world Christianity, but I find it most unlikely. The effort to recapture Christian America, if it ever existed, seems bound to fail. There is too much reliance on worldly methods to accomplish spiritual goals, There's too little faithful preaching of the Word of God, which alone can prepare the way for genuine revival. And then there is this other reason that efforts to rebuild Christian America are bound to fail, and that is that America is rapidly becoming a post-Christian culture. There's a new television program this fall which seems to capture the spiritual climate of our nation, at least in its title. It is called nothing sacred. It stars an irreverent and unorthodox priest. I don't know if God exists or not, Father Ray tells his congregation. Nothing sacred is a slogan for our times. The worship of God is no longer sacred. The ministry of God's Word is not sacred. Matrimony is not sacred. The family is not sacred. Even Human life itself is no longer sacred. Therefore, barring an undeserved outpouring of the Holy Spirit, within a generation, the influence of the church on America will be lost, very likely. The influence of Christians on the city and on education and on politics and on entertainment and on the media will continue to dwindle until it will almost disappear if that is the case, if I am right about those things, then what the church needs is not a growth theology, not a power theology, but a remnant theology. And that is what we find in Jeremiah 40 and 41. These chapters give us a lesson in remnant theology. And The main lesson is simply this, that God will preserve a remnant of his people. His people may be attacked. They may be besieged. They may be oppressed, they may be scattered over the face of the globe, and yet they will never be lost. God always preserves a remnant for himself. A remnant, as you know, is a leftover that is worth saving because it is useful. My wife and I once lived in an apartment that had drab gray carpeting. Actually, we lived in such an apartment more than once, but once we actually did something about it. And we went to the carpeting store and we rummaged around among the remnants until we found a decent piece of blue carpeting. And we rolled it up and we carried it home. And it was not a fine oriental carpet. It was not wall-to-wall carpeting. It was just a remnant, and yet it was decent and useful, and it was wonderful to have in our home. And the same thing is what God has salvaged in these chapters from the ruins of Jerusalem, a decent, useful remnant of his people. Now, the days following the fall of Jerusalem were terrible days. The houses and the walls and the palaces of the city had been broken down and burned to the ground, and many of the leading citizens were being deported. And this is all because God was punishing the city for its sin. We find this in chapter 40, verses 2 and 3. We find it on the lips of a Babylonian. He said, The Lord your God decreed this disaster for this place, and now the Lord has brought it about. He has done just as he said he would, and all this has happened because you people sinned against the Lord and did not obey him. The general sounds like a prophet. The people of Judah have been too blind to understand the ways of God, but here even a Babylonian knows enough theology to figure out that God was punishing his people For their sins. Now, in the aftermath of that divine judgment, things were so chaotic that even Jeremiah was momentarily lost in the shuffle. You may remember from chapter 39 that the king had given special orders that his life was to be preserved, that he was to be sent back to his own people. And yet, before all of that could take place, Jeremiah was captured again by some overzealous soldiers and he was marched to Ramah, and that is where Nebuzaradan finds him. He finds him bound in chains among the captives being carried into exile to Babylon. But he found him, and he freed him. He said, today I am freeing you from the chains on your wrists. And he gives him the choice whether he will return to Babylon or whether he will return to his own people with Gedaliah at Mizpah. And so we find Jeremiah in chains again, still suffering for the Lord. And yet here we find him freed by God's providence so that he could remain among the remnant of God's people. As we continue to read, we discover that he was not the only one left in Israel. He went to Gedaliah and stayed with him among the people who were left behind in the land. Verse 6, these were the very poorest of the land, not the rich, not the talented, for all of them had been carried off to Babylon. But here we find that God is preserving a remnant of His people, and they were not the only ones. As we continue to read, we discover that many of the army officers, the sort of soldiers of the guerrilla army, came and gathered around Gedaliah at Mizpah with all of their soldiers. And the names, the difficult and unpronounceable names are listed for us in verse 8. Although these names are unfamiliar to us, they are well known to God. This is God's remnant of Chosen by grace. These are the peasants and the soldiers and the refugees that God has preserved to be for His people. Under the leadership of Gedaliah, their numbers start to grow. All the Jews who had been scattered in Moab and Ammon and Edom and all the other countries surrounding all heard that Gedaliah had been appointed as governor and they all gathered around him from the countries where they had been scattered. You see, this gathering of the remnants of Israel after Israel's darkest day gives hope for us in post-Christian times. Like so many scraps of used carpeting, the people of God have often been reduced to a remnant. In the days of Noah, only a few people, the Scripture says, eight in all were saved in the ark when the earth was covered with water. In the days of Abraham, the destiny of God's people depended on a single child, Isaac, the son of promise. In the days of Joseph and Moses, God's people were sent and enslaved in Egypt. In the days of the kings, they were surrounded by enemies and finally banished into exile. Even in the days of Jesus Christ, His disciples were called a little flock. The people of God have always been, you see... Remnants. They have never been wall-to-wall carpeting. This is remnant theology, and it is hopeful theology, for although God's people often find themselves in desperate straits, God has never gone without a people to love Him and to serve Him in this world, and He never will. The Scripture assures us in the 11th chapter of Romans that God will always preserve a remnant. In that chapter, the Apostle Paul remembers the lament of the prophet Elijah how he appealed to God against Israel Lord they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me Elijah as we sometimes do was feeling sorry for himself he thought that the whole people of God had been reduced to a single man and what he needed was a refresher in remnant theology Paul asks, and what was God's answer to Elijah? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You see, Elijah was not the only one. The remnant of God's people was 7,000 times larger than he realized. And then Paul applies that same lesson to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. This is a promise for the preservation of the righteous remnant, even in post-Christian times. The strength of the church is not in numbers. It is not in strategies for growth. It is not in management techniques or survival skills. The strength of the church is in the gracious promise of God that he will preserve a people to be to his praise. Now, God not only preserves a remnant, he also provides for his remnant, and this is a second part of remnant theology. As we read this chapter, we find the remnant of the Jews in the most precarious of positions. Their very existence as a people is in jeopardy. But they did have this one thing going for them, and that was that God was determined to provide for his remnant. He begins by making a generous provision for his prophet Jeremiah. Did you notice the way that the Babylonians are covering his expenses for room and board? When Nebuzaradan was finished meeting with Jeremiah, the commander gave him provisions and a present and let him go. One wonders what the Babylonians gave as parting gifts in those days. Well, whatever it was, Nebuzaradan gave. Jeremiah, a reminder that God provides for his remnant people. The story is told of a godly woman who lived next door to the village atheist. And the two neighbors often argued about the existence of God and about the power of prayer. And one day the old woman ran out of food. And she began to pray to the Lord to provide for her daily bread. And her neighbor overheard her through the window praying for this. And he said, Aha! I have the opportunity now to disprove the existence of God. And so he went to the grocery store, and he bought her a sack of groceries, and he set it on her porch, and he rang the bell, and he hid in the bushes to see what would happen. Well, when the old woman opened the door and she saw the groceries, she said, "'Praise the Lord, my prayers are answered.' And then with a smirk on his face, the atheist stepped out from the bushes and he said, "'Not so fast.' And he held up his receipt from the market and he said, "'I bought those groceries. The Lord had nothing to do with it.' And then the woman said, "'My dear young man,' as she corrected him, In that case, the Lord not only provided the groceries, he also had the devil pay the bill. (laughs) Now, this is very much what happened to Jeremiah. God had the Babylonians pick up the tab for him and to provide his daily ration of food. God's provision for the rest of his remnant was just as generous You see how Gedaliah, the governor, had full confidence that God would provide. He took an oath to reassure his people, Do not be afraid to serve the Babylonians. Settle down in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will go well with you. You are to harvest the wine, the summer fruit, and the oil, and put them in your storage jars and live in the towns you have taken over. This speech shows what a good leader Gedaliah was. His very name means, The Lord is great. And here he appeals for calm and pledges a return to prosperity. And these words were not just idle campaign promises. As we read in verse 12, when the remnant of the Jews gathered at Mizpah, they harvested an abundance of wine and summer fruit. These people had lost everything they had. Their homes had gone up in smoke. Their fields had been trampled. And yet God gave them an abundance from the harvest a harvest of vines and trees they had not even planted themselves. And the lesson is that God always provides for His remnant. He gives His people what they need, even when it scarcely seems possible, even in dangerous times. The Lord gives His people the blessings of life. And if you belong to God, if you have come to Him through faith in Jesus Christ, then God will always take care of you. It will provide the work that you need and the clothing that you need and the housing that you need and the food that you need to live. Many times in the Christian life, you will find that a famine of adversity is followed by an abundance in the harvest. And the application, of course, is always to trust God for everything that you need. This is what Bruce Milne says about God's providence. He says, God's providence gives us a security in this insecure often violent world. The Lord sits enthroned over all the military, political, social, and economic forces of our generation, and his eternal purposes are ripening through it all. Nothing has got out of hand, nor will it. We can therefore live day by day knowing that the hands which hold our lives are the same hands which hold all things. You see, God preserves and provides for his people, even when they are no more than a remnant. There is a third thing that God does for his remnant people. He keeps his promises to them. As you may know, most of the book of Jeremiah consists of prophecies of judgment, not to mention fulfillments of judgment. And yet Jeremiah also made many great and precious promises of blessing for God's people. And some of those promises were for the remnant. In fact, Jeremiah is the book of the Bible which mentions the remnant of God's people more than any other book in the Bible. Chapter 23, verse 3, God promises, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. And here in Jeremiah 40, we find God gathering his people from Moab and from Ammon, and from Edom, and all the other countries. God also promised, and we find this at the beginning of chapter 31, the people who survive the sword will find favor in the desert. You can see how that promise describes the remnant which gathered around Gedaliah at Mizpah. They had survived the Babylonian sword, and now they receive what God promised, favor in the desert. They are harvesting an abundance of wine and summer fruit in the wilderness. Later on in that same chapter, an even richer harvest is promised. I will gather them from the ends of the earth. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the oil. Of course, these promises ultimately refer to the return of the exiles from Babylon and the rebuilding of Jerusalem many years later. These promises began to be fulfilled immediately after the fall of Jerusalem. God preserved a remnant with Jeremiah and with Gedaliah and with that tiny group of Jews under their care. And then God began to provide for the remnant. They were able to rejoice in his bounty and in the abundant fruits of the harvest. When things seemed to be at their very bleakest, God began to bless. And this shows that even in the most desperate times, God keeps his promises to his people. There will be desperate times for the church. There will be times, and perhaps they have already begun, when the church seems to be in decline and when Christians seem to be outnumbered. And in such days, it will be good to remember the promise, the remnant promise that Jesus made to his disciples. I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. God will keep that promise like he keeps all the rest of his promises. If you are wondering where to make the best investment, put stock in the church. It is the one institution in all the world which is guaranteed to survive. By the power of God, the righteous remnant of God's people will endure all of the onslaughts of hell itself. And one of the reasons we know this is because as soon as God began to fulfill his promises to the Jews at Mizpah, they faced a hellish onslaught of their own. Shortly after their bountiful harvest, they were attacked and almost destroyed by Ishmael. There is not much theology in this story, but it is a lesson from history in remnant theology. You'll notice that the trouble did not come without warning. Some of Gedaliah's cabinet members came to warn him that he had an enemy in his own camp. In fact, Ishmael's plot to assassinate the governor was so widely known that Gedaliah's friends assume that he knows about it already. This is chapter 40, verse 13. Johanan said to him, Don't you know? Surely you know that Balas, king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, to take your life. And yet, very foolishly, Gedaliah did not believe them, even when Johanan offered to eliminate Ishmael himself. He said, Let me go and kill Ishmael. Why should he take your life and cause all the Jews who are gathered around you to be scattered and the remnant Of Judah to perish. You see the way that he uses the word remnant. His concern is for the remnant of God's people. And yet Gedaliah said to Johanan, don't do such a thing. What you are saying about Ishmael is not true. And yet, sadly, what Johanan was saying was true. Gedaliah was assassinated by a member of his own cabinet. He was forewarned, but not Four armed. And Ishmael, who was of royal blood, came with ten men, and while they were eating together, he got up and struck down Gedaliah with the sword. Gedaliah's death was a tragedy. Like Julius Caesar, he was betrayed by one of his own officers because he listened too little and trusted too much. His death was also an act of terrorism. The murder took place while the host and the guest were eating together. This was a gross violation a despicable violation of all the conventions of hospitality. Ishmael was like Judas Iscariot who betrayed his master while they were breaking bread together. But the bloodshed did not stop with the governor Ishmael became a sort of serial killer as we read in chapter 41 verse 3 he also killed all the Jews who were with Gedaliah as well as the Babylonian soldiers. And then, in an act of utter depravity, he slaughtered 80 holy men. So we read in verse 4, the day after Gedaliah's assassination, before anyone knew about it, 80 men who had shaved off their beards came bringing grain offerings and incense to the house of the Lord. And Ishmael went out to meet them, weeping as he went. He said, come to Gedaliah. When they went into the city, Ishmael slaughtered them and threw them into a cistern. You see, these 80 pilgrims were on their way to the temple, even though it was in ruins. They were holy men who had traveled a great distance, and the condition of their hair and their beards and their clothes showed that they were in mourning. They were repenting for the sins of the nation. Yet Ishmael met these holy men with crocodile tears and invited them and welcomed them in the name of Gedaliah. And since they did not know the latest news, they did not know that they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Their slaughter was an act of senseless violence committed by a wicked, wicked man. Ishmael murdered God's governor. He betrayed God's pilgrims, and then he piled the bodies in a hole in the ground. And then, as we go on to read in the story in verse 10, he took God's people captive and he prepared to hand them over to the Ammonites. You see, for Ishmael, nothing was sacred. Hospitality was not sacred. God's appointed leader of God's people was not sacred. The worship of God was not sacred. Repentance was not sacred. Even human life was not sacred. Why did Ishmael commit such atrocities? I believe the Bible gives us at least a hint. It comes in verse 1 of chapter 41, where the Bible says that this man was of royal blood. In other words, Ishmael was one of the house and line of David. And no doubt he considered Gedaliah to be a rival, an imposter. No doubt that he thought that the throne of Judah belonged to him by rights. And yet when Ishmael tried to grab the power for himself, he became a sort of anti-Christ. He did not wait for God to put him on the throne the way David waited. He was not willing to follow the way of the cross the way Jesus did. Instead, he tried to seize the kingdom of God by force and by treachery. And in Ishmael, we see, by way of contrast, the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. That king whom the Scripture says comes to us gentle, riding on a donkey. He did not usurp God's throne. Instead, he waited for God to exalt him to the highest place. Nor does Jesus try to clobber people into the kingdom of God. Instead, he very gently and sweetly invites us to come and receive forgiveness for our sins. But Ishmael did just the opposite, which is why I call him a sort of anti-Christ. The Bible says that there have been many antichrists. And it's an appropriate title for Ishmael because he tried to destroy God's people. He killed their leader. Because of his violence, their numbers were dwindling and they were about to be enslaved by their enemies, even perhaps to disappear altogether. It appears to me that many similar things may happen to the American church in days to come. We may suffer the loss of courageous Christian leadership. Already there is a great dearth of Bible-believing, Bible-teaching ministry. We may further suffer the loss of church members, For although a few denominations are active in evangelism and church planting, most of the rest are in sharp decline. We may undergo bondage to the spirits of this age, to prosperity and pleasure and power. All of those things may happen to the church. But God's people will never be destroyed. This is the overwhelming lesson of remnant theology. It was true in Jeremiah's day. When Johanan heard about all the crimes that Ishmael had committed, he went to fight him. And he drove him away, and with great gladness, the people went over from Ishmael to Johanan. They delighted to return under godly leadership. Johanan rescued the remnant of God's people. This has been the story of God's people throughout all history, The first Christians were hunted by the emperors of Rome and scattered across the Middle East. Christians of the Middle Ages were surrounded by barbarism. The Christians of the Reformation were ridiculed and branded as outlaws. The struggles of the church continue in many parts of the world to this present day. We see them in the Middle East, where Christians are oppressed by Islam. In China, where they are opposed by communism. In Europe where they are gradually worn down by the forces of atheism and secularism. And yet, there remains, as there always will remain, a remnant chosen by grace. And you can be part of that remnant by turning to Christ in faith and repentance. And if you do that, you will be able to testify with Christians down Through all the ages we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. For we are a remnant chosen by grace. Let us pray together. Our Father, we give you praise for the promises of your word. We give you praise for your preservation of your people and your provision for them. And We pray that you will care for us and preserve us and provide for us at all times as you have promised to do in Christ. Amen.
0: You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse in the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.